content warning for discussion of sexual assault and sexual advances on a minor. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Cape Fear. A convicted rapist, released from prison after serving a 14-year sentence, stalks the family of the lawyer who originally defended him. So we have a thriller. We've got a... This is one of the most bizarre things I've, I've ever said. It is a thriller remade from a classic thriller, mm-hmm. but remade by one of the most famous directors of all time. Okay. I didn't... I mean, I had heard about this movie. I didn't realize it was a remake. And at the end of the day, it's it's really good. Yeah, no, it it's pretty good. I mean, it's it's it wanders a, a smidge, but I mean, Robert De Niro's fabulous. So nothing about this movie is groundbreaking. No, which is what you would expect from it. I find it interesting that you know I've heard a little bit about the '60s version, and I think you know from what I've read about this and the other one is that. Because Scorsese's coming into this, mm-hmm. and because he has massive respect for it, because it is one of it, it, it the original is a classic film. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it was a classic in its time, okay, but it has become a classic and and a classic thriller that inspired a lot of people. I think Scorsese really just said everything that they couldn't get away with back in 1962. We're actually gonna do that makes sense. And I got to tell you, somehow, if it were a different director, a director who didn't have the same sense of scope and ideas about movie making that he does. Mm-hmm. I, I think this movie would have been blunt force. Like it would have been impossibly difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. He makes it watchable, especially with the subject matter, which is difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, let's be clear this like, we put the content warning up front because it's very, very much a part of this movie. This is about a man who does horrible things to women. And not only that, but tends to do it to underage girls, too. Yes. And somehow, everybody involved rides the line so well of saying, we don't want to shy away from portraying that because we want you to understand what a bad guy this is. Mm -hmm. While not doing what bad movie makers do, which is either blame the victim Mm -hmm. or shame them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't either. No, what it does, and it what it also does not do, which many films and TV series will do, where the villain, the bad guy, has a big role, is they'll make you sympathize with him. Like you'll you, they'll give yeah. you a reason for why this person is so bad and does the things they do. They don't do that. At no point do you look at this guy and be like, oh, you know, I kind of get why he's such a bad dude. No. <laughs> what they do is they show you why it's so easy for him to get away with his con. They they show us how he gets away with doing these things. And from reading, that's a little bit of the feature of the original. Sure. Where they don't get into as much of the, the social standing that there is, but mm-hmm. the biggest part of Katie in the original story and the novel and everything like that mm-hmm. is that the most sinister part is the fact that he can weave in and out mm-hmm. of his crimes in society and not get caught. Sure, and that's what is terrifying, but you have to show that, like how 
easily he can get near someone to hurt them. And I appreciate the fact that you don't sympathize with him. What Scorsese does instead is says, he's not a good guy. And we're not mm-hmm. going to pretend at any point he's a good guy. Yeah. What I am going to do is get you to understand why it is that he would go to such lengths to torture this one man. Mm-hmm. Because what could be really unbelievable is like, this man would go out on a rampage no matter what. Mm-hmm. But he has focused this energy very specifically. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah, he's attuned this rage to one particular circle. And that is what then becomes so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And you you pair that with Bobby De Niro doing a very different version of the role he's so good at. Yes, I keep forgetting that it's him because the one, the accent is so against his type. Yes. Or the South. I'm thinking of settling right down here in New Essex, Counselor. Have you been following me? Well, it's a small town everywhere you turn. I guess we're going to run into each other. I'll take care of Mr. Katie. You too. What? But also, he is so channeling uh, an acolyte of his that that's what's getting in my my uh, my brain. What acolyte is he channeling? I I get such heavy Harvey Keitel vibes. Oh, okay, but okay, Keitel's not an acolyte of De Niro. It's well, the other way around. Okay, but you know what I mean. Like those two are right different sides of a very similar coin. Yeah, and I well, I think the other fun thing is like if you look at this movie and then you look at Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. it's kind of the the mirror version, mm-hmm. the Bizarro world, where in Taxi Driver it is the quiet, shy man who is pushed to his limit, mm-hmm. and this is the absolutely ostentatious, over the top evil mm-hmm. being narrowed in. Yeah. And so he's he's working from the sort of opposite direction with the same results. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you put Marty and, and Bobby in the same arena together, they make magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they just fucking do. Yep. You know, you pair all of that on top of it and you have just a really good thriller. And it's not the best movie that anybody involved has made, but it's a really solid movie that's really entertaining and unexpected. Mm-hmm. And that I think is that's worth that's worth the price of admission, you know? Yeah. Well, moviegoers seem to think so too. The budget for this film was $35 million. Mm-hmm. That's 76 million in today's money. That is a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> it's Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can appreciate with that amount of money that you're also getting the Marty's not gonna crap out on this one because he knows he's remaking something that's got such a stature. Mm-hmm. So he's like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. Well, it grossed $79 million in the U.S. for $172 million in today's money. And globally, it made $182 million, or $396 million total in today's money. Well, that's a pretty good hit. He did great with this one. Mm-hmm. I'm not shocked. But the real fun part here, and, and we'll get into... The man behind this and how this sort of came down. This is the first ever R-rated film produced by Amblin Productions. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. So if you if you notice there, Steven's little ET guy shows up, and mm-hmm. 
wow, Steven, you didn't just pick an R-rated movie. You picked like the R-rated movie. Yeah. I mean, this one pushes limits mm-hmm. real hard. It really does. And I I think what's fascinating to me is like it pushes those limits in the subtle ways. Mm-hmm. Like, granted, there's a lot of, of violence and some blood and some colorful, colorful language. But then there's all the subtleness and, y- you know, there... There, there's a whole period in cinema where people were infatuated with love stories with underage girls, which is disgusting mm-hmm. and terrible. Yes. Somehow, Marty instead was like, I'm going to do it, but, but, but we're doing it because it's the only way that this story works and has the impact it needs to. Mm-hmm. Because that's the problem with the original, I think, is that it's in the novel. Yeah. But the original movie, it's 1962. There's no way you can even hint at it. Yeah. So you've got to really work around. And Marty's like, no, we can actually do it. Mm-hmm. And again, if anybody else but him is touching this movie, I don't think it gets pulled off. But somehow he manages to thread that line to where it is it is deeply uncomfortable, but it is so realistic mm-hmm. and feels real that you're able to roll along with it. And also because you don't sympathize with the villain. You're yeah. like, Oh, he's a monster. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, our writing, we have to talk about the original novel, The Executioners, mm-hmm. written by John D. McDonald. Uh, this has been his most notable work ever. He's been adapted for some other smaller stories that he wrote. Okay. And then, and, and this is one of the interesting things, Marty really, there, there was some good adaptation to modernize the story. But down to the score, Marty is really trying to pull a lot of the original shots and the original scenes mm-hmm. from the first movie. I don't know how much is shot for shot versus a reimagining. Mm-hmm. But when we give the credits for the earlier one, he's definitely pulling from those earlier sources for this one. There are a couple shots that are very much like that's so 60s. And not in a bad way, it's just like, that's a that's a very specific choice. Well, and the score for the film is literally a rearrangement of Bernard Herrmann's original score for 19 in the 1962 version. That's cool. He got Elmer Bernstein to do a new arrangement, conduct it, but it is the exact same score. Hmm. So he's again, I, I think he's he's definitely sitting with the we're going to pay our damn respects to a classic. Mm hmm. And again, only a guy like Marty would do that and not do the Gus Van Zandt bit. Oh, no. Mar- Marty loves a classic. Of course. He really does. But if he's going to do it, he's got to put his own twist on it. Well, yeah. So our earlier screenplay was written by James R. Webb. Before this, he wrote Phantom of the Rue Morgue, Apache, Veracruz, The Big Country, and Porkchop Hill. After this, he wrote How the West Was Won, Guns for San Sebastian, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, and The Organization. Mm-hmm. Wesley Strick wrote the screenplay for this movie. Before this, he wrote True Believer and Arachnophobia. Hmm. After this, he wrote Wolf, The Saint, The Glass House, Doom, Love is the Drug, A Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010, and created The Man in the High Castle. Oh, okay. What do we think of the writing of this movie? Oh, it's very good. I mean, they've got great source material to work from. I know, it's very good. But it's just such a... It's such a simple premise mm-hmm. that allows you to just go explore, right? <laughs> yes. And it's not succinct, but it's purposeful, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
it gets to its point and it doesn't fuss around too much with that. True. Yeah. Most of the fuss that we get from this movie, let's be honest, is is from Martin Scorsese. Like, because yeah. he's wanting to play around and I don't blame him. But in terms of the story, it's real simple. It's normal family having a happy life. Mm-hmm. This guy did, you know, put this guy away in prison many years ago. And now he's come back and he's going to fucking ruin this man's life. Mm-hmm. He's going to put him through literal hell. And really, it comes out of from there, you can just explore whatever avenue you want. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a perfect setup for a thriller. I I believe, and I, I you'd have to go, like, do tons of research. But if I recall, Cape Fear from 1962 is one of the first versions of that story told. Mm-hmm. And again, some of that was you couldn't really get to the purest evil of that guy because you're censored. Yes. This movie, however, boy, howdy. <laughs> They went for it. They they go for it. And I have massive respect for the going for it. And I have massive respect for the moments of restraint that they show, mostly so that they can keep the story moving forward. Because mm-hmm. I don't think that any of the moments that are a little ridiculous are necessarily the fault of the writing. This isn't good, fellas. You don't need to expect some sort of epic sweeping story out of this movie. It's really funny that this is the movie he made right after Goodfellas, mm-hmm. because instead of, you know, his typical fare, he's just like, all right, now I'm just going to make a really good thriller. It's yeah. kind of like Spike Lee making Inside Man. It's just like, I want to make a fucking heist movie. Yeah. Awesome, Spike. Go for it. Yeah, Inside Man. And, and this, this kind of has that same vibe for me of Marty's just like, all right, now I'm just going to make a really cool thriller from a, based off a movie I love. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. <laughs> I'm in. It's just a good, easy, simple story that that they get to bounce around and play with. And I have mm-hmm. I have no notes on the writing for for sure. Same. Now let's talk about a favorite of this show and a favorite of us. Let's be real. Yeah. Martin Scorsese. He's good people. We've talked about him three different times on the show. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and Goodfellas. What do we think yeah. of Marty's directing in this movie? It's good. Yeah. Like it's good. It's classic Marty. It's definitely paying homage to the original. That's all good. It's fine. It's great. Good job. Nothing special, but good. It's not as unique as some of the other things he does. And it, and I don't feel like we get as many of those iconic shots that we do from things like Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, stuff like that. Yeah. But he's having fucking fun. Yep. <laughs> like, you're just watching this going, oh, he's just having a fucking ball just making a movie with people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just it's a fascinating little time capsule for him because it's a totally different type of project for what he normally does. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to watch this one because you're just like, I, like we said, it's just you, you just get to watch him be like, cool, I'm just gonna make something I like because I can yeah. now because I was mm-hmm. like in the desert for 10 years and then I finally made Goodfellas and now I'm allowed to make movies again. Yeah. Well, Scorsese had read the script three different times while making Goodfellas. He hated it every single time. (laughs) Apparently, in each script, the Bodens were a happy family, and he thought they should be miserable. Okay. Which, I gotta say, having them be dysfunctional really works. It adds a different layer of conflict to the family that they're not, like, all happy. And, like, when he, because he's at first trying to keep it. From the family, which fair, like, I don't want to worry anybody if I can, like, make this go away quickly. But the fact that there are cracks there makes the wife more suspect and the daughter already kind of think mom and dad are pains in my ass, which is which is good. 
because that just allows Katie to kind of like slither in a little bit easier. Oh, yeah. No, that's the whole thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. if they're if they're a perfect, happy family and they're all a unit, he has to be so much more of a blunt force. And the whole thing is like Mm -hmm. he's supposed to be able to get in and out of there without anybody figuring it out. Mm hmm. That's supposed to be the creepy part. Yep. Marty was right. It took a year to convince him to actually take on the project. Mm. And again, this is, like I said, between Raging Bull and Goodfellas, he was basically in movie jail. Yeah. Like up to and including Last Temptation of Christ. So I could totally understand him being like, I'm not going to remake a classic movie when I just got the ability to tell my own stories again. Yeah. Yeah. Like, fuck that shit. Fair. And I'm so glad that they convinced him. Mm-hmm. They filmed over 17 weeks in South Florida, so they were down there in the swamp. That's cool. Although, I should say Cape Fear is in North Carolina, so that's technically where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Scorsese heavily imitated Hitchcock up to modeling the intro based off of Vertigo. Okay. So he's literally ripping Hitchcock shots for a lot of this. The parade scene references strangers on a train. The nightmare sequence is a nod to Marnie. And I will say, Jessica Lang is doing her best Janet Lee impression. Because holy shit. Yeah. He got the costume and the hair to look exactly like Janet Lee for her. Mm. This is a movie of firsts for Marty. This was his first ever to use visual effects. Mm. I mean, there was no way he was going to do the fire sequence. In any other way than the way he did it. Yeah. Like, it's a little laughable, but at the same time, it's like, you just lit a dude on fire. Like, come on. Uh, It's also the first where he allowed the screenwriter, Wesley Strick, on set during filming. Hmm. And we know Marty's pretty big on letting the actors play, letting the actors find their own way through the script. Kind of not having the writer presence because he wants to be able to just kind of go with it. But uh, I think this is one of those first moments where he's like, you know, I'm older now. I really, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. The scene in the auditorium was originally scripted as a chase, but Marty thought it would play better as a seduction. Thus, Robert De Niro and Juliette Lewis ad-libbed that entire scene. That's amazing. Completing it in three takes and them using the first one. And it was Robert De Niro's idea to put his thumb into her mouth, which is horrible and disgusting and creepy and also perfect for his character perfect for what's happening oh yeah and juliette lewis plays it great too because she's just infatuated by this guy who's giving her this attention and terrified oh she's terrified but it's exhilarating oh yeah so that's what she's playing which you know that's how some of these situations escalate or continue but it's so interesting because yes you do like once you see him sitting there you just assume something bad's gonna happen this is gonna be bad and it is awful but you are expecting something more violent oh of course and instead they played creepy they played for oh my god this could happen to anybody this is awful every man has to go through hell to reach his paradise you know what paradise is no salvation because your daddy's not happy, your mommy's not happy, and you know what? You're not happy. Are you? No, I'm not. Do 
You thought about me last night, didn't you? Um, yes, I did. I know. Yeah, well, and, and it makes the ending when they all finally come to reckon with him, mm-hmm. including Juliet Lewis, mm-hmm. it makes it all the more earned. Yes. When they've seen what he's capable of. Sure. And he pushes it far enough that none of them can forgive him. And yeah. then he's like, well, I might as well dive into my evil now. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. It's such a horrifying scene to watch, but it's so well done. <laughs> yes, yeah. And this is, again, this is where Marty's strength is with the actors of like, I cast good people and I trust them to go for it. Mm-hmm. That's his whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, he knows if he's got a pretty good story, he can do all the cool visual stuff in the world. And then he's like, you guys are the actors. You do what you do great. And I'll do what I do great. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's just a sweetheart, so that helps too. He makes everybody feel okay to try things like that scene. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, if it came off really, if it if it didn't ride the line the way it needed to, he never would have put it in the movie. He would have had it as a chase and just left it. Oh, yeah. But he saw that there was actually something there that works and doesn't make you feel good about what he's doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Scorsese had the Bowden's house surrounded by oak trees covered by tufts of Spanish moss, looking like a sunny oasis by day, but by night, isolating and claustrophobic, a perfect cover for Katie. Mm. This was the first time Scorsese shot in a full widescreen format. He would typically mix because he wanted to avoid home video pan and scan, ruining the film for home video. By 1991, more and more widescreen filming was being completed and they were releasing widescreen versions of video. So he committed to filming in the widescreen format for this and then going forward. Mm -hmm. And who could have been better? We said Amblin. Mm -hmm. This was Steven's movie first. Interesting. He was attached to this and Marty was attached to Schindler's List. Wow. The two talked it over and they realized we need to be doing the opposite projects. Spielberg, because Marty was like, Steven's the right guy to make this movie. This is all about him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Spielberg recommended Marty. He told him, look, this is a chance to make a hit. Because I know he was reticent, but it was like, you made Goodfellas, and that was a huge statement and a comeback. Make this, make a bunch of money, and then you can make a whole bunch of stuff that you want. Mm -hmm. So this is their only ever collaboration. Okay. Steven had input because he's always a hands-on producer. Yes. But he was not credited as a producer. He's credited through Amblin Productions. Okay. So there you go. And as a nod to Steven, while they show a shot of the sky, Marty included a shining star. No. Because they're best buds. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about what, uh, what really makes this amazing, right? Yeah, the bread and butter of this. Let's talk about this cast. Yep. Let's talk about Robert. Fucking De Niro as Max Cady. <gasps> that accent rose me so much. So it was funny. Like, I was going along and I was like, okay, look, it's a really good accent. It's a yeah. really good accent. It's also, there's something off, and it's because his cadence is still Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. even though the accent's pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. Nevertheless, holy shit, he goes for broke, man. Oh, yeah. I don't, something came, like, he he got to go full gloves off on this one, because, like, every other time they told him to do a role like this, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you think to, like, 
we talked about Travis Bickle, but even like Jake LaMotta, right? Not a good dude. Mm-mm. But also you have to you have to sympathize with Jake LaMotta while also recognizing how horrible he is. Yeah. And so a lot of De Niro's time in these big roles is restraint, restraint, restraint until the moment comes to explode. Yeah. And so he's got to pull it back and pull it back. He does the same thing in Heat. Yes. And he's a master of it. And in this one, Marty got told him, you don't have to do any of that. You can just be fucking crazy. I love it. And he's so fun doing it. I just watched this. I was like, oh, I want so much more of him just being the worst villain. Mm-hmm. Him mustache twirling is incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's devious. He's dangerous. Mm-hmm. He's weirdly sexy, <laughs> but like also utterly terrifying. God, he's good. Yeah. Let's get something straight here. I spent 14 years in an eight-by-nine setting surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. You see? Granddaddy used to handle snakes in church. Granny drank strychnine. I guess you could say I had a leg up, genetically speaking. One of the reasons, like, this movie stands apart from a lot of his stuff is it's so different for him. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different kind of role for, for De Niro, which makes it so fun and watchable. Because, you know, everybody else has to be grounded in some sort of real world, and he just gets to go fucking wild. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. Do we ever have anything bad to say about De Niro? Um, we didn't love him in The Irishman. Well... I don't know that that was his fault as much as it, it was that movie. It wasn't all his fault, but he didn't help. Last 20 minutes were really good, though. Mm-hmm. Weirdly. Yeah. Anyway, he based his accent off of another role in which he played a Southerner. Mm-hmm. But as he worked on it, he took excerpts of the script and then would go around into Southern towns and talk to locals and have them read the lines into the tape. Okay. So he'd go have strike up a conversation, he'd get it recorded, and then he'd practice the accent based off what he heard. Hmm. Okay. His accent reportedly gave Marty the creeps, enough so that De Niro would call Marty's house and leave voicemails as Max Katie as a joke. Well, that sounds hilarious. <laughs> I'm really into that. But De Niro committed even deeper to this role. Oh. He paid a dentist $5,000 to fuck up his teeth. Ugh. And then another $20,000 after filming to have them fixed. No. That's no. Just fucking no. Yeah. Just no. No. He also worked out for several months before filming to become completely lean and muscular. He reportedly reduced his body weight to just 3% for this role. That's cool. It shows. Yeah. This is the most ripped that Robert De Niro has ever fucking been. Oh, yeah. And that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. And and it's so funny that if anybody else had done this, it'd be like, you know, well, superhero stuff. It's like when Robert De Niro goes lean and muscular, it makes him horrifying. Yes. Because you're like, the man already has the most threatening aura in cinema. Mm-hmm. And now you've made him super strong. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. He also researched numerous sexual predators and suggested the scene where he bites his victim. Gross. 
Yeah, there you go. All right, who could have been better? If this was Spielberg's movie, mm-hmm. Bill Murray was suggested for Katie. You know, in a different world, I can see that. Yeah. Especially learning more of the things we know about Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't fucking care. Just give me Robert De Niro as the crazy villain all the time, always, forever. Yeah. I need one more good role like this from him at some point. Yes. Before he rides off into the sunset, because holy shit, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Now let's talk about his mild-mannered counterpart, Nick Nolte. Mm. playing Sam Bowden. Before this, he was in TV and TV movies. Then The Deep, North Dallas 40, Cannery Row, 48 Hours, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Extreme Prejudice, New York Stories, and another 48 Hours. Mm-hmm. After this, The Prince of Tides, Lorenzo's Oil, Blue Chips, U-Turn, Affliction, The Thin Red Line, The Good Thief, Hulk from 2003, Hotel Rwanda, Peaceful Warrior, The Spiderwick Chronicles, Tropic Thunder, Warrior, The Company You Keep, Gangster Squad, and Run All Night. What do we think of Nick Nolte in this movie? He's great. He's very, um, like, unnerving. Again, completely against type for Nick Nolte. Oh, yeah. Nick Nolte plays one of our best alcoholics yes i mean that's the role he gets so many times Mm -hmm. and in this one he's the put together guy yes but like he's he honestly okay i know this is because i've been listening to stuff about the iraq war recently but he gives off like donald rumsfeld george hw bush vibes Mm -hmm. because he's got those big glasses and he's tall and he's lanky one of the interesting things was he was three inches taller than De Niro. So in order to make De Niro look more imposing, Nolte actually just slimmed down mm-hmm. completely. Like he just went completely lean. He didn't exercise or anything. Mm-hmm. And that way he would look slight next to De Niro. That makes sense. And it's unnerving to look at him because it's like, this is not what I think of when I look at Nick Nolte. Yeah. But it's a reminder of like, there's a reason Nick Nolte is like was a go-to actor for a really long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, this will not be his only appearance in this series. Okay. But I mean, he's fascinating to watch because he he totally nails this mild-mannered dude who gets pushed to the brink up up to the point where he finally goes, "Fuck it, I got to do what I got to do." Oh yeah. The, you know, he call calls the sheriff is like now listen, I've got Kersink's gun with me, and you're going to find the piano wire that Katie used in the house. Yeah, I know how this looks. I know it. You're not supposed to flee a murder scene. But listen, Lieutenant, now you may know this and you may not, but in the law there's a thing called force majeure. It means an unforeseeable act of God, and it cancels all promises and obligations. So legally speaking, all bets are off. You find Max Katie, and we'll come back. Max Katie is an act of God. Yep. Like, I love the fact that he he taps into the inner wimp inside of him. Yeah. And it just plays that out. And he plays every facet of like the philandering he's done when he was in the past, his disconnection with his family, and then all the way into just being like, nobody else is gonna save my family but me. Yeah. So I gotta do it. Hey, he's really good. And it's, again, it's just a totally different turn for an actor we're very used to in a specific kind of role. Oh, yeah. We got some who could have been betters. A lot more for this one. Okay. Harrison Ford. Maybe, yeah. Marty's first choice for the role. 
Uh, De Niro called Ford personally to try to convince him, uh, but he eventually wound up turning it down. Can you imagine Robert De Niro and Harrison Ford? That would have been cool. Also, who could have been better? Kevin Klein. In order to uh, get Scorsese's interest in doing the film, De Niro did partner work with Kevin Klein, playing Sam, trying to see if Marty might be willing to take the project on. Oh, okay. So, interesting. Now let's go through some other names you can give me a yes or a no. Okay. Warren Beatty. No. Jeff Bridges. Yes. James Caan. No. Kevin Costner. No. Richard Gere. Yes. Mel Gibson. Begrudgingly, yes. Ooh, I would have said no. Mm. He's too much of a tough guy. Dennis Quaid. Yes. Christopher Reeve. Yes. Oh, yeah. Robert Redford. Yes. Again, Robert Redford and Robert De Niro? I know, right? Holy shit, that would have been amazing to watch. Oh, good times. All right, let us talk about Jessica Lang as Lee Bowden. Mm-hmm. prominently featured in our Oscars 82 series, mm-hmm. won an Oscar for Tootsie, did not win an Oscar for Francis, still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. What do we think of her in this movie? She's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't love her, but she's pretty good. She's got a weird character arc just as on the page. Mm-hmm. It- it's interesting because I feel like part of the problem is they've made this a trope now when I don't think it was always a trope in movies of the housewife who has become neglected. And she's not a housewife, right? She's a working uh, a working woman, but she's working from home. Yeah. She's felt neglected and, you know, is paranoid and has all these things going on. And then eventually that paranoia transmutes into, oh, I'm being paranoid about the wrong things. Yeah. It's weirdly written, but I think mm-hmm. she does a fantastic job with it. And yes. makes it believable. And, you know, it it's a testament to the fact that Jessica Lange's a really fucking good actress. She just is. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't always get the best material to work with, but she sells the shit out of it every time. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I, I she does a great job of being mom while also just being like, I don't fucking trust anything from any of you, including you, husband. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Mm-hmm. Diane Keaton. Ooh. Um, I think she would have been a little bit better at the stern, so I do like that. Hmm. I don't know. Would it, it, I don't know if it would have been better or worse. It just would have been different. Yeah. Would have been very different. And finally, let's talk about Juliette Lewis mm-hmm. playing Danielle Bowden. Before this, she was in My Stepmother is an Alien and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Mm-hmm. After this, she was in Husbands and Wives, California, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Natural Born Killers, The Basketball Diaries, Strange Days, From Dusk Till Dawn, The Evening Star, The Other Sister, The Way of the Gun, Enough, Old School, Cold Creek Manor, Starsky and Hutch, Catch and Release, Whip It, The Switch, Due Date, August Osage County, Jim and the Holograms, Ma, Yellow Jackets, and Queer as Folk, and Welcome to Chippendales. She's done a lot of TV recently. Mm -hmm. What do we think of Juliette Lewis in this movie? Oh, she's great. Fucking movie star mm-hmm. performance. Breakout, breakout. This is what it was. Mm. So many people saw her in this movie. It was like, oh, she can do that? Because mm-hmm. up until I, I, this was, she was 16 or 17 when they made this movie. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. The performance she gives. Yeah. 
it's it's the same Jodie Foster level, and she's in the movie more. Yeah, like, and is one of like the linchpins of the whole story. Just her, just her delivery of that opening monologue. Yeah, is outstanding. My reminiscence. I always thought that for such a lovely river, the name was mystifying, Cape Fear. And the only thing to fear on those enchanted summer nights was that the magic would end and real life would come crashing in. And like, you know, we talk a lot about De Niro in this because he's so fascinating to watch, but she's like the glue that holds the whole fucking movie together. Oh, yeah. She's so good. (laughs) Like, it is... It is incredible to watch her in this and then know, like, you know, all the stuff she did after and, you know, became a a huge star for a long time. Great stuff. Apparently, while they filmed the scene in the auditorium, Juliette Lewis did reveal that she started to get a little bit of a crush on Robert De Niro. Fair. Fair. It's a very intimate scene they're doing there. Yes. To be fair, there's absolutely no reports, and uh, I'm I'm fairly certain on this one that De Niro ever reciprocated anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. That man is known to be one of the utmost professionals. Yes. But still, I was just like, that's very funny. We have a lot of who could have been betters here. Okay. Because th- this is the youngest role, right? There's gonna sure. be some. There's always there's always gonna be a good a good chunk of a search. Drew Barrymore. Yeah, I get it. She screen tested but failed, saying she, quote, acted all over the place and it was just the biggest disaster of my life, unquote. Fair. Oh, poor Drew. Honestly, Drew, I love you. Uh, This wouldn't have been the right role for you. No. How about Phoebe Cates? Yeah, I can see that. In the De Niro pitch to Scorsese, she was the counterpart to Kevin Klein's Sam Boat. Oh, yeah. Which they, uh, I, I don't know if they were together then or not they've been together for a long time yeah uh phoebe was older though phoebe's mm-hmm. definitely older than some of these other actresses being sure named here. reese witherspoon i knew her name was gonna come up yeah yes. yeah she would have nailed it too yeah absolutely oh, yes she would have to be fair i love juliette lewis in this movie and i think they would have been very different vibes if reese had been in it oh sure sure totally different vibe i don't think reese would have worked with and while she works with Jessica Lang, I don't think she would have worked with Nick Nolte. Yeah, there's that part of it. Mm-hmm. How about Nicole Kidman? No. Scorsese wanted younger. Yeah, she's too old for that. A little bit too old at this point. Uh, reportedly cast at that point, but then uh, not getting it, Sarah Jessica Parker. That makes sense. But mm-hmm. also, I think she reads too old here. I, that's And that's yeah. my problem with Kidman. It's not that Kidman's too old, because they're all... Them with like Nicole Kidman or not um, with Reese Witherspoon, they're all about the same age. They're they're not very far apart, but those two read older. Next to Jessica Ling and Nick Nolte. Yes. Can they read the right age? Yeah. Correct. Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. Winona Ryder. No. <laughs> Wrong vibe. Uh, Winona was up for fucking everything. Because she was a star and still it's is. Absolutely true. But uh, we got, I think we got the best. I think we got the best choice for, for that performance because Juliet's so goddamn good in the movie. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about some Arpons. Random people of note. Joe Don Baker as Claude Kersick, the private eye. He is our only ever Bond sidekick and villain. Still funny to me. Mm-hmm. Robert Mitchum playing Lieutenant Elgart. 
he is the original Max Cady. Okay. This is this is totally a Marty move. Oh yeah. Uh, who could have been better for this role, though? George C. Scott was originally cast in that role, mm. um, but he was suffering from health problems. And I think at that point, Marty was like, hmm, maybe I go stunt cast on this. That makes because sense. then he gets Gregory Peck to play Lee Heller, mm-hmm. private injury lawyer. He was Sam Bowden in the original film. Yeah. And this was his final film appearance. Aww. We also have, as the judge in the courtroom, Martin Balsam. He played police chief Mark Dutton in the original Cape Fear. And we mentioned him for All the President's Men as well. He was one of the editors. Oh, okay. Ileana Douglas as Lori Davis, Sam's special friend. Mm. Uh, she is the granddaughter of Melvin Douglas and has been in a number of movies and TV shows. She modeled a character off of Jennifer Levin, a victim of the preppy murderer, Robert Chambers, from 1986. Oh. And originally, the scene where Katie handcuffs Lori was supposed to result in her screaming terrified. But instead, Ileana Douglas made the choice to have Lori laugh and try to play along. Yeah, I love Which that. makes it even fucking creepier and more terrifying. <laughs> well, I honestly think that's more realistic. Yeah. Like, oh, you're gonna... oh fuck. Because she, she does scream when it gets to that point of no return. Oh, yeah, when, when he takes a chunk of her face off. Yeah, because, you know, like, there's a moment where it's like, okay, let me see if I can, like, charm my way out of this. Oh, no. Fred Thompson as Tom Broadbent, a law and order stalwart and former presidential candidate. Yay. <laughs> I was just like, I know that guy. Oh, that's John Don Baker. Wait, nope, that's not Joe Don Baker. Uh, that's that's Mr. Fred Thompson. He ran for president. Domenica Cameron Scorsese as Danny's girlfriend. This would be Marty's daughter. Oh, yeah. Billy D. Lucas as big man number two. He was a former stunt double for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. As fruit stand customers, Catherine and Charles Scorsese. Of course, mom and dad got to be You got to throw mom and dad in. But- the best by far is the woman watching Max Cady get out from under the car is none other than Esther Roll, Florida Evans from Maud and Good Times. Okay. Amazing. Marty was like, Esther, let me just throw you in this movie right here. Love it. <laughs> All right. Awards. Awards. This movie was nominated for two Academy Awards. Okay. Best Supporting Actress for Juliette Lewis. Oh, I love it. Best Actor for Robert De Niro. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to (laughs) say? Yeah. They're incredible. All right. A little bit of trivia. Trivia. The climax was filmed inside a 90-foot water tank on a soundstage, and it took over four weeks to shoot. Okay. The actual swamp scenes, however, were filmed in John U. Lloyd State Park in a mangrove swamp. However, a tropical depression hit the area for four days, so in order to actually do the swamp scenes and make their own fake rain, they had to wait for the actual rain to stop. That's funny. Movies! Mm-hmm. <laughs> While their original counterparts did not get along very well, Nick Nolte and Robert De Niro apparently became really great castmates and friends off-camera. Mm. The ice cream parlor scene was shot in the first week of production, with the owners complaining for the first three days due to the lack of business they were getting. Mm -hmm. 
When Katie strangles Kursik with the piano wire, it was Steven Spielberg's idea to have Katie be dressed as the housekeeper. Mm. See, Steven always gets at least one good idea in there. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, well, that's very Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Especially the wig. The wig was the one that I was like, ooh, it's so psycho. I love it. Mm -hmm. That's a good that's a good note, Steven. Don't <laughs> we, hate like, it. He, if he just produced movies, he'd be one of the greatest producers of all time. Well, he is one of the greatest producers of all time. That's true. And finally, if you watch through the credits, at the end, while the sound of the storm goes underneath, mm -hmm. about three seconds before the credits cut out, you can hear the sound of women screaming. Not disturbing at all. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings, okay. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this movie. Piano wires. <laughs> There's got to be a better one though, right? Mm. Cigars. Yeah, right. Those big, giant cigars. This is neither of our movies, but I'll go ahead and go first. I'm going to give it a solid four. Okay. Like, it, the movie's over long. The movie's a little bit messy. It, I, I wasn't bored. Yeah. It's really entertaining. And then you get two of these just absolutely incredible performances around a really solid cast mm -hmm. with just some hiccups here and there. But it's like, this is a deeply uncomfortable movie. And somehow they made it really engaging. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm going to give it four. I'm going to do four and a half. Okay. Yeah. I think, and I think the only thing that I'm really knocking it for is being overly long. Performances, great. Story, great. Script, great. Direction, great. It's just a little long. You, yeah. just need, you need to tighten about 15 minutes out of it. Just just 15. It's a, just a slim edit. Come on, Thelma. You can you can do it. You can cut it. It's, uh, it's great. Well, now we're going to go from fictional creeper to real life mobster. Oh, okay. Mobsters. Love it. We are going to talk about Bugsy. Bugsy. Okay. A, a movie I've known literally nothing about. Right. Except that it came out in the 90s, and apparently it was a big fucking deal. Mm. I know that I get Bugsy confused with Dick Tracy. That's all I know. Well, I don't, I don't think anybody should be shocked by that one. No. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.